Amen. Hey, once again, we're in our study, part three, abortion, the mass murder of children. Now, how many of you guys have been here with the first two? All right, praise God. Well, the first two, just to give you a little recap, the first one, of course, we dealt with the history of abortion, the mass murder of children. And there is a history, and it spawns from the lie of evolution. And it's unfortunately the scriptural sad road that we are going down, even as a nation now, Romans chapter 1. And when you sit there and have the audacity to say that God does not exist, even though he's given you plenty of proof, which is what the lie of evolution does, which we've bought into as a society, okay, what's going to come next? Next comes sexual immorality, Romans chapter 1 says. And then God not only gives you over to that, if you don't turn around from that, what happens? Next thing that's going in, you're going to start opening doors up to homosexuality and lesbianism. Okay, that. And then if you don't turn around from that, then what's going to happen? It's going to get so dark, God says, you're going to be handed over to a depraved mind, and you're going to begin to do things you ought not to do. It's going to get so wicked, you can't even believe it. And certainly the murder of 60 million plus children, and it's still going on as we sit here, is something you ought not to do. But again, we saw that that's the basis that they use of evolution. That's not a baby, it's a fetus. That's not a, a real person, that's just a blob of tissue. That's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a baby from the moment of conception. God's clear about that, and frankly, science knows about that. Okay? But then we dealt with the second thing. The second week was the motive. Remember that? Here's the history. Well, why are these people doing this? Crazy. Well, money, money, money. Remember our text, our opening text? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we saw that people aren't just doing this, but they're doing it to become millionaires. Remember that one lady, the abortion lady? She was doing it because she wanted a Lamborghini. She coughed it up on the secret tape. We saw it with our own eyes. It's gross. It's sick. But that's what a lot of people are doing. Now, what I want to deal with tonight is the issue of the church. Where are we? Where is, quote, the church on this issue? Okay. What should we be doing in response? And then what are our so-called, key word here tonight, so-called brothers and sisters in Christ doing in response to this mass murder of children, okay? But our opening text tonight is 2 Corinthians 14. Go ahead and turn there, 2 Corinthians 14. God tells us clearly in his word what we should be doing when it comes to this issue. There's no need to hesitate. There's no need to waffle. There's no need to sit there and say, well, I just need to pray about this or I need to do some more studying about this. No, you don't. It's black and white, okay? What you're talking about is murder, okay? <clears throat> and you can't mix the two. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 uh, verse 14 through 18. If you find 3 Corinthians, what do you do? Throw it away. Get a different Bible. That's not in there. Although I hear there is a debate in church history, if there ever was, but nah, whatever, I digress. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, 14 through 18 is our opening text tonight. When you get there, say moo. Moo. All right, here we go. Do not be what? Yoked. Now, what's the word yoke mean? Joined together, okay? What, you know, anybody ever raised in the Midwest around cows, farming? Did you know they had these low-tech devices before tractors? Yeah, they're called oxen or cows, you know, whatever. And you, and you put this harness on them, usually two, a couple of them together, and it kind of would attach both of their necks so that they could both go at the same time when they're pulling the plow. Right? That, there was a yoke that you put on them. Right? And that's the word that's used here. In fact, the uh, prefix of this Greek word that means to yoke, okay, it just did not mean just together, it's heteros. Heteros is where we get the word heterosexual. Which means what? Somebody of a different kind. Now, if we were talking of the same kind, it would be Hamas or homosexual of the same kind, right? So this is a heteros with this yoking. So basically it says, don't yoke yourself of somebody of a completely different kind. You see what I'm saying? The, and, and that's the thrust of what he goes into is these people are not... Christians, these people are not like us. And so what do we do? Yes, we witness to anybody on the planet, amen? 
But we're talking about being yoked. We're not talking witnessing. We're not talking trying to reach that lost person. We're talking about yoking yourself together with something of a completely different kind. And that certainly fits those that would uh, promote the mass murder of children. But let's take a look. So don't be yoked together with who? And he calls it out, unbelievers. And then he gives you several different examples in case you don't get that obvious statement. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Right? We would use a vernacular today. It's like oil and water. Doesn't mix. Right? Uh, Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? In fact, what harmony? Right? Oh, we just all need to work together. Isn't that the lie of the ecumenical movement today? Let's just all work together. Forget truth. We just love, 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 love. Let's just have this harmony. And what's Paul say? Hey, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial, of course, is a variant basically saying in the vernacular, scripturally, Satan. Right? You're actually going to try to combine Christ and Satan? What are you doing here? This is crazy, Paul is saying. In fact, he goes on. What believer, uh, what, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Right? Did you know that the love of money, that money, that it's an idol? What are these people doing? That's their idol. They want to get rich. That's their idol. That's their God. And he says, you can't do that. You can't mix the two. For we, Christian, are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I, God speaking, will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come, what? Work together with them, right? Because we just need to let people know we love them. I mean, don't talk about the truth. Don't mention that, because then they might leave. And we're just going to dance around the issue and act all happy, and somehow that's going to be great. Wrong. What's God say? Get out of there. Separate. And again, we're not talking witnessing. We're talking about being yoked. God says, uh-uh, you better be separate. Come out from them and be separate. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So that's what we're going to see tonight. Again, the theme is, I think it's obvious in God's word when it comes to this issue. It is cut and dry. It's black and white. Abortion is the mass murder of children. And what is God's response to that evil? What The darkness. The working of Belial or Satan. What should we do? Work together with it? Compromise on it? No. And that's what we're going to see tonight. Unfortunately, a lot of the church is. It's crazy, man. But we're going to start off with part three of our Voice of John uh, DVD uh, series. Or DVD. And, uh, but you're also going to see again on tonight is the abortion provider claimed to be a Christian. Yeah, watch this. We had to open. We had two abortion clinics open. We had to open three more to meet my goal of becoming a millionaire. Now, an abortion clinic can open one day, pay for itself in the first month, be a cash cow in the second month. And our goal was to open three more abortion clinics in the next year. Now, everybody inside that abortion clinic fights. The doctors fight, the nurses fight, the counselors fight, the partners fight. It was a doctor, his living girlfriend, and me. Uh, We had, the girlfriend and I had great difficulty. So we called in a man who was introduced to us as a business counselor who actually said he could solve our problems by merely meeting with the three of us an hour a week for four weeks. Well, you've probably figured out I can talk to anybody for four hours, so that was not a problem for me, and I was going to be a millionaire next year. He was a very strange man. He would not talk about money. He wouldn't talk about how much he would charge. I didn't care. I was going to be a millionaire. And we started meeting with him. The second time I sat down with him, I noticed something so very different about him. I couldn't understand it. He didn't fit in my world. He didn't drink. He didn't cuss. He didn't run around on his wife. He didn't do drugs. And 
I don't know why until this day, but I finally said, are you a preacher? He said, yes. I said, what in the world are you doing in this situation? He said, God sent me. I knew the man was crazy. I said, you know, I'm a Christian. I have a Bible in the top right-hand drawer of my desk. I will have you know that I pray every day. I didn't tell him I prayed none of those women would die, and I prayed there'd be a lot of abortions today. But when I told him that I tithed on all that money and he was not impressed, I had a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach that I was in trouble. He said, uh, Carol, my deacons and I have been praying for some time. We believe there's someone inside this abortion clinic that God wants out. He said, we are going to be leaving in 30 days. I was pretty excited. I'd picked up the person I wanted him to take with him when he left, but he didn't stop there. He said, Carol, God loves you. He loves you and he knows you can't be good enough. He knows you can't work hard enough. Carol, you can't buy your way to heaven. But because God loves you so much, he made a way of escape for you. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to walk the face of the earth, to live that sin-free life and die on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for your sins. And by the simple act of faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, your life can change. He said, I wouldn't be much of a salesman if I didn't ask you if you wanted to pray that prayer and ask Jesus Christ to come into your life and heart. I've been a deal maker all my life, and that was such a simple deal. I actually thought I'll just pray that prayer and shut that man up. But he is, and he was and is, the king of the weird prayer. He said, uh, Carol, I'm going to pray this prayer, and you pray it after me. And the prayer he prayed was this. Dear God, I am a sinner. Please forgive me of my sins. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins. Reign on the throne of my heart as Lord and Savior. Make me a worker in your vineyard. Amen. I got up. I shook his hand. I said goodbye. I got in my car. And I laughed all the way back to that abortion clinic. But when I got back to that abortion clinic, something had happened. Those girls were all huddled over in the corner. And they were all crying. I'd never seen that before. I'm sure it happened, but I'd never seen it before. I started taking them back to my office and sitting down with them eye to eye, knee to knee, saying, you don't have to have an abortion. Your parents will not kill you. Let's go home. I'll go home with you and talk to them. At the end of that day, I was not saying, isn't this great? I saved three babies today. I was saying, I lost $75. I've got two kids in college. Money, money, money. That's where my heart was. And I fell to my knees, and from the floor of that abortion clinic, a few hours after the first prayer, I prayed a heart prayer. Lord, if there is a Lord, if this is not where you want me, hit me over the head with a two-by-four. I did not know he had one, but he did, and it was very swift. Our clinics were caught by the CBS affiliate in Dallas, Texas at that time, attempting to do abortions on women who were not pregnant. They sent their reporter to the doctor to be certain she were, they weren't pregnant, sent them in our abortion clinic, wired for sound, and caught us red-handed and said, Yep, babe, you're pregnant. Got your money. Why don't we just do it now? They aired that special 27 days after that pastor said someone would be leaving in 30 days. And all I knew was it was me. I think when most people hear about abortion survivors in our world, they automatically think of a woman and sometimes a man who has experienced an abortion in their life and, you know, suffered consequences as a result of that. And what people don't often think about is that the word abortion survivor 
actually describes a group of people who survived their own abortions. And I know that because I'm one of them. You know, I don't, I don't think people recognize, of course, when they first see me, that I suffered what I did when I was just an infant. My birth mother had a saline infusion abortion and she thought she was less than five months pregnant when she went in to have that abortion. And what that actually entailed was a toxic salt solution being delivered into the amniotic fluid surrounding me in the womb. And the intent of that salt solution was to actually scald me to death. You know, if people look up a saline infusion abortion in medical journals or you look at it online, you'll read about how that toxic salt solution is meant to scald the child. It burns the skin, peels it away, moves internally into the organs to literally burn the child to death. And that type of procedure typically takes place over about three days. What I know in the case of my biological mother's abortion in my life is that I soaked in that toxic salt solution for five days. And you know, I always tell people, I, I can't imagine what it was like for me to have to fight for my life in the womb. Because what that procedure involves is literally the child fighting, the woman feeling the child thrashing about in the womb, fighting for their life. And so not only can I not imagine what it was like for me, but I can't imagine what it was like for my biological mother, you know, to have that salt solution delivered, to go home and wait for the sign that the life inside of her had been effectively snuffed out, and then to go back to the hospital on the fifth day and have her premature labor induced in the hopes that she would deliver a dead child that day. I can't imagine. But what I do know is that when she went back to the hospital on the fifth day, at St. Luke's Hospital in Sioux City, Iowa. Her labor was induced with me and I was delivered. And I was initially believed to be a successful abortion. From what my adoptive parents were told, they cast me aside, left me for dead in my mother's hospital room while they tended to her. They were going to dispose of me later. Now I know this is my life. But sometimes I can't imagine what the beginning of my life was truly like. When I survived that day and I was initially left for dead and I was laid aside, God had other plans that day. And that's what brings me great joy is to know that in spite of how I was left in that hospital room, God allowed me the opportunity to make weak grunting noises and tiny movements with my little body. And there was that nurse still tending to my biological mother. And that's when they realized that the abortion had not succeeded in ending my life. And that's when the medical procedures began that sustained my life. And I always tell people, I know looking at me, people can find that hard to imagine. But God does miraculous things. Even in the midst of such horrific behavior. Wow. Black and white, isn't it? Man, 
How could anybody even hesitate on this issue? But that's what's happening. It's not just a hesitation. In fact, the more I got into the research for this study this week, it blew me away just how I knew it was bad. I didn't realize it was this bad. And I'm not talking the world. We've already dealt with that the last two studies. I'm talking in the church. But what I've, me personally, my theory is we're still back to Romans chapter 1. Because once you make that first compromise and you say, and you buy into the lie of evolution and have the audacity to say that God doesn't exist, then you start compromising on sexual immorality. Then here comes homosexuality. And then you start doing things that ought not to be done, like abortion, mass murdering children. Now, we look at that, and then we dealt with that context in the world, but what's going on in the church? Is the church compromised on evolution? How many churches do you know has ever even done a study on evolution versus creation, let alone support a literal six-day creation Genesis account? Rare if to none. You think prophecy is bad? That's just as bad. So the church is not dealing with that. And some churches are actually promoting evolution, if you can believe that. Remember we saw in our study before, they're even doing Darwin Sundays. Remember that? It's crazy. So the church has already done that. Is the church sliding on immorality and sexual immorality? Yeah, all over the place. To the point where I can't believe I still have to have discussions with people that it's wrong to live together, let alone have uh, sex outside of marriage, which is called fornication, by the way. Which leads to the temptation to now we got to murder the mistake, right? So the church is that. Is the church sliding on homosexuality? Yeah. Do, do you see? It's following the same thread of Romans one as the world. But what blew me away was I thought, are you serious? Come on, the church can't slide on this one because this is black and white. What does darkness have in common with light? Christ with Belial? You're trying to mix the two? Are you? No way. Don't be unyoked. It's bad. Now, let me just share you a, a couple examples of churches, not just churches, quote, clergy supporting abortion. This was from last month, right? Religious leaders bless the opening of a Planned Parenthood, a new abortion clinic, and they call it, quote, a sacred work. And you got to see the picture. There's a bunch of them. Supposed to be religious leaders, and they, they admit, quote, blessing an abortion clinic may seem antithetical to religious beliefs about the sanctity of life, but various religious leaders came together to do that on Tuesday at Planned Parenthood's newest abortion fil- uh, facility. Oh, what, what, don't use their terms. Newest what facility? Mass murder of children facility in Washington, D.C. Quote, religious leaders, as you can see here, representing more than 20 groups, participated in the ceremonies inside the new, listen, mega facility. So these guys really got the assembly line going. Okay? And it opened up in September. The new abortion facility is located next to, listen, Two Rivers Public Charter School. Remember what we saw? That's why they're putting sex ed in the schools, is to what? Is to get them sexually active so that they can become a customer. They admitted that last time. Now listen to this. It said, and this is from the CEO, Dr. Laura Myers, the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood in Metropolitan Washington. Now, with this so-called clergy support, listen to what her response is. In almost every message to our staff, I talk about doing our sacred work. This, the so-called clergy's involvement and blessing, confirms the sacredness of the work we do of mass murdering children. 
Later, she said pro-lifers, quote, tried to separate those of us working on, on or supporting the right of women to choose from a deep sense of spirituality. So today, it's a shift in that narrative. In other words, they're joining forces with this. People supposedly being Christians. I'm not talking the world, but they're supposed to be Christians and Christian leaders. Now, listen to this. Before the ceremony kicked off, religious leaders gathered upstairs for their own prayer circle. And it was like an ecumenical thing. It was led by this guy, a a rabbi, Michael Namath. He called upon their obligation to the world, listen, quote, to make it whole and holy through abortion. Now, the irony of this statement is this is a Jewish rabbi and this is eugenics. This is what Hitler did to the Jewish people. And then now you're supporting this and saying it's going to make the world whole and holy. That's what Hitler thought he was doing by exterminating people to create his master race. That's kind of ironic. Then the formal event began featuring leaders from different, quote, this is the article, secular article, Christian denominations. What? Then it was joined by Hindu priests, Muslim imams, and they did visual art and a liturgical dance. Because you got to act religious. Listen to this. This is a guy named Willie Parker. Listen to what he says. He said, I've been a Christian longer than I've been an abortion provider. Do you see the oxymoron? It's like icy hot, peaceful war, chicken yummy. Don't mix. It don't work. I had to throw in a little bit of brevity there for you. It's a pretty serious topic. What? You've been a, quote, Christian longer than you've been an abortion provider. And he said women have been made to think that this clinic is some evil place where God is not. Cursing women for making sacred decisions. Our answer to the curse is to bless, i.e. bless Planned Parenthood. Then the director, the medical director at Planned Parenthood, Serena Floyd, says she plans to tell patients that the abortion facility is now a blessed space and that those of faith support your decision. And they ended by singing this little light of mine. Christians, supposed Christians, keyword supposed. I'll get to that in a second. Oh, that's just one example. Here's this guy. This is a, uh, basically a charismatic guy, word of faith. Remember word of faith? That's a lie. Hinduism. Right, is what it is. That's our study that we interrupted, and we're now dealing with this topic currently. But he's a televangelist, and he is urging uh, people in his church to not just get vasectomies, but have abortions. So this guy right here, call him out. His name is Ernest Angley, okay? And uh, the Akron Beacon Journal, there in Ohio, did an investigation on him and found out that, in fact, that he uh, not only encourages uh, the men to have vasectomies, uh, but for them to not have children and again to encourage imbor- abortions. You know why? Listen to this. Remember, he's word of faith. It's all about money, perfect wealth, perfect, right? Quote, he doesn't want people to have kids because it would take their time and money away from the church. Because what's he all about? Money. Other church officials said the minister, listen, this is a secular article, quote, said he was a liar, a drug addict, and an adulterer. And he wouldn't respond to the beacon. And then, listen to this. He claimed, this guy claims, listen, that he claims to be a, quote, prophet of God and that he can heal people of afflictions. See another irony there? Heal, you're supposed to be a prophet of God, speaking for God, which is not true. But God doesn't support this. And then you say you have this gift to heal people of afflictions, but you encourage them to murder children. 
This is in the church, folks. This is not the world. Let me give you just one more example. A Presbyterian minister blesses Planned Parenthood Clinic, and he serves as their pastor. This guy, here he is. This is Marvin Ellison. He's a Presbyterian minister. And uh, this is in Portland, where he, quote, blesses the operation in prayer. And he wrote, this is this guy, here's what he said. He said, quote, we're proud to be a part of a highly professional and highly caring healthcare team. No, you're a death squad. He said, as chaplains, we undertake this work not in spite of, but because, listen, but because of our faith and values. What do you mean because of your faith? What Bible are you reading? Then he has the audacity to say this. It's his belief in the Bible, Ellison says, that leads him to work for Planned Parenthood and not against them. Listen, in fact, he says, God is absolutely for abortion. In the church. Exactly. His role, he says, as a minister, he says, is to help women give them, listen, spiritual permission to kill their unborn child. The last 10, you saw the video, the girls were weepy. You know inside. Everyone that has an abortion, the testimonies, we haven't got to the testimonies yet in our study. They said they know that this is wrong. Because you got a conscience that God gave you. And then here's this guy, supposed to be a pastor. And he's helping them to remove that sting of conviction. Mm. And then he goes on and says this, quote, We thank God for Planned Parenthood for the amazing work you do. Let me quote Isaiah 5.20 real quick. Remember that? Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for Bitter. Wow. But he's not the only one. Folks, I'm telling you, this is what surprised me. I knew it was bad. I knew this had been going on. I've been saving some of this for future studies. I just didn't realize how bad it was in the church today. But let me give you a couple more examples of so-called Christians blessing Planned Parenthood. Let's take a look. This next story is an example of so-called religious leaders leading their flock astray and twisting God's words to feed an agenda of death and destruction. Based on a Facebook post by Whole Woman's Health and an article in the Texas Observer, earlier this month, a group of so-called clergy gathered at an abortion clinic in Fort Worth, Texas to, quote, bless abortion providers, clinic staff, and patients. The group reportedly sang hallelujah and prayed. When we sing hallelujah, we should be praising God, not praising abortion, which goes directly against God, the author of life. If we're going to debate abortion on biblical grounds, it's clear where the good book stands. Thou shalt not kill. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And many more verses. It's not up for debate. We condemn an event that twists Christianity to fit an abortion agenda. The Ohio Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice will host a, quote, clinic blessing at an Ohio Planned Parenthood abortion facility next Friday. Organizers said they want to show that, quote, anti-abortion advocates do not have the monopoly on faith or God. They even claimed that, quote, many faith leaders and people of faith hold that accessing and providing abortions are good and godly decisions. What these so-called religious leaders are doing is dishonest and deceitful. But using ministers and twisting truth to persuade the faithful to support abortion is nothing new for the industry. In a 1939 letter, Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger wrote, 
We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. Just because you put a collar on it doesn't mean it's truth. Be warned, my friends, this event is a perversion of faith, and these clergy members are false shepherds. Interesting. I love that line, just because you put a collar on it, doesn't make it the truth. But hey, if somebody goes to a seminary, that makes them a Christian. Somebody gets behind a pulpit, they must be a Christian. Somebody says that they're an educator. God called me or told me to tell you. That must make them a Christian. No, folks, we are flooded in the American church with so many false shepherds, fake Christians. I'll get to that in a second. But it's gotten so bad because, listen, we don't have a standard. You see, Paul warned over and over again, the scripture warned many different times that these false fakers would come into the church and you need to get them out. You need to not put up these false teachers, these, these false prophets and all these things in nature. But, but we don't have a standard anymore because we're not preaching the truth. So it's, it's all about numbers. Anybody can come in. That's been going on for a whole generation now, folks, at least 25 years, if not more, called the church growth movement, right? So anybody just comes up, I get, add them to the list. Well, guess what? Those people don't just always sit in the pews. Where do they go? Sometimes they get into your Sunday school class. Sometimes they serve on your church board. Sometimes they're behind your pulpit. And this has gone on so long, my theory is, now they're the ones who's controlling the church. And I'm talking non-Christians. Because how in the world could you sit there and bless and ask God to bless the mass murder of children and you're really a Christian? i got a problem with that, personally. No conviction? And it isn't just you don't want to deal with it, you support it. Something's wrong, right? But let me give you an example of just how far it's gone. It isn't just the uh, uh, so-called clergy supporting it. But again, folks, I'm telling you, the, the standard is so low nowadays that's allowing this to take place that now there's an increase in our country on what's called atheist churches or godless churches. It's, it's just, it looks like a church. You sing and do religious things like a church, but at least these guys don't hide behind a collar or a mask. They admit, no, we're not Christians. We just like to feel religious. It's actually increasing in our country. Watch this. This is nuts. Today, the Sunday Assembly, or as it's better known, the Atheist Church, is launching 35 new services in cities across the world. There's ones in New Zealand, Hungary, France, the UK, and 16 here in the US. So I'm here at the one in Strongsville, Ohio, just outside Cleveland, and we're going to see what it's all about. Nation's way of receiving you. Nation's way of retrieving you. Nature's way of telling you something's wrong. What's your background? Were you raised in a religious family? Did you go to church? I think I was saved twice, so it obviously didn't take. You were saved so, twice? <laughs> yeah, I, recently I've, I've just been uh, de-baptized, so I have the actual certificate oh, really? to show that I've been de-baptized. How do you get de-baptized? Well, you uh, dry you excessively. <laughs> <laughs> The central idea we need to spread is that we have only one life, which means that that life has to be lived to the fullest. There is no second chance, no opportunity to have a do-over. There is no afterlife in which wrongs are righted and cosmic justice meted out to the evildoers. 
The Sunday Assembly was started by two British comedians, Sanderson Jones and Pippa Evans. They held the first event in London in January 2013. After that, Jones and Evans found that people were getting in touch, asking if they could set up their own Sunday Assembly. What is it like being a now quite prominent atheist and organising something like this? Do you get any pushback from people who are religious that you know? Um, I do have several close friends who are religious. One of my best friends from high school, she is a pastor. I actually turned to my pastor friend to ask her, how do we start a church? And she gave me reams of advice, lots of great ideas. So your pastor friend gave you advice on how to start a godless church. Exactly, yes. (laughs) Maybe it's because you got more in common than you realize. You shouldn't be having a female pastor in the first place. The Bible's very clear about that. That's wrong. That's a godless decision. But then you got this so-called female pastor in a godless position giving godless advice to start a godless atheist church. Ha, 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 ha. This is what's going on in our country, okay? And again, you're saying, well, what, what's going on here? You saw that guy, I mean, he said that, uh, well, hey, I was uh, saved twice, but it didn't stick. What are we dealing with here, folks? These are people, in my opinion, scripturally, right? Because that's more important than my opinion. But my opinion, based on the scripture, is you're not saved. Because you cannot lose your salvation, right? He may have walked in an altar. He may have said a prayer. But that don't save you, right? There has to be a genuine conversion. When a genuine conversion takes place, i.e. you're born again and the Spirit of God dwells in you, which happens at the moment of salvation, there's no way you can support this. I'll give you a personal example. I may have shared this before, but in my testimony, believe it or not, I was all about, you know my background, all about rebellion, all about self. Don't you tell me what to do. Don't call me no sinner, right? I was involved in the occult, new age, the whole nine yards, right? It was all about self. Self's on the throne. I will do whatever I want to do. Nobody will tell me what to do. And believe it or not, I, even as a guy, I, at that time, supported abortion, right? Because what? Because nobody should tell anybody what to do. It fits that rebellious mindset, right? I kid you not, I'm one of the many multitude of things that was going through my brain. The moment I was getting saved, I was crying and weeping at the same time. It was absolutely phenomenal. I could feel the weight of the sin, everything just being lifted off. I was brand new. It was like, you heard my testimony for the first couple of days, the grass was greener, the sky was bluer. It's like, wow. But instantly getting saved. I didn't read a verse. Nobody preached to me. I didn't watch a video study on it. I instantly knew abortion was wrong. Why? Because the Spirit of God is inside me now. And and these aren't people just, again, avoiding the issue. They're not just waffling on the issue. They don't want to touch the issue. These are the people who are going to support to the point where they say, we support it and we're asking God to bless it. I'm sorry. I don't think you can be a Christian and do that. Now, if you think that's wild, let's take a real quick study again at the Bible repeatedly over. Well, maybe that's just some isolated passage. Are you kidding me? The Bible repeatedly warns, especially in the last days, you're going to be surrounded, church, by so many fake people, you better keep your eyes open. Right? Let's deal with just what the, the scripture says about that. First of all, there's dead faith believers. James 2, 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but he's got no deeds? Can such a faith save him? In the same way, faith by itself is it's not accompanied by action. It's what? It's dead. It's not saying that you're saved by your works, but when you get saved, what happens to your insides? The Holy Spirit's inside of you, and guess what? Your works change. He convicts you of sin. You're not happy in sin. You're not complacent in sin. I'm not saying you don't sin, but I'm saying your attitude towards sin has changed. 
and you want to serve Jesus. He says, so if you sit there and you got faith and nothing changes, it's fake. It's called a dead faith. A dead faith is not a saving faith, folks. And then he goes on and says, oh, you believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Are demons going to heaven? No. Oh, how many people do you, oh, I believe in God. I'm a Christian. I believe in God. Really, you're doing no better than demons. But that's one category. Another one's dead attendance believers, I call them. That's 1 John 2.19. This answers that guy that said, I got saved twice, but it didn't stick. No, you were fake the whole time. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. Here's your acid test. If they had belonged to us, what? They would have remained. But their going showed that how many of them? None of them belonged to us. They were fake. They were in your midst the whole time. Just like Judas Iscariot. He was right in the midst. But he was fake. Folks, I'm telling you, this happens on a grander scale than I think we even want to deal with. Dead religion. Oh, you saw those people. They were clapping, singing songs because they like being religious. But religion doesn't save you. Jesus called these people out, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In fact, many, he says, are going to say to me on that day, judgment day, Lord, Lord. I mean, come on, we did this religious stuff, man. I mean, we prophesied in your name. I mean, I mean, didn't we ask for your blessings upon this Planned Parenthood? And in your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles. And Jesus said, I'll tell them plainly, I never knew. Not I knew you once and you lost it. You never had it. I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Dead behavior believers. You claim, but the acid test is in how you live. We're not saved by our works. But again, if nothing changes, you ain't fooling nobody except for yourself. For Titus 1.16, such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live they are despicable and disobedient worthless for doing any good and then specifically the bible says false brothers right it's the greek word pseudo as in pseudo false autophos brothers as in philos autophos or philadelphia philos love delphia city brotherly love right it's pseudo autophos so it's fake brothers that's what the term means a false brother in the greek is one who in a showy way professes to be a christian but they're destitute of Christian piety and knowledge. So they make big claims. Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Look at me. I dress like a Christian. I act like a Christian. I go to Christian religious things. I try to do Christian religious deeds. And they make a big deal of it. But you're not a Christian. Paul gives many examples of these in the church. He says, Galatians 2, 4. The matter arose because some what? Pseudo-autophos. Fake brothers. You say false, but it's fake is what the term means. Fake brothers, false brothers had infiltrated what? Our ranks. Whose ranks? What's the context? The church. Fake Christians are coming into the church to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. 2 Corinthians eleven 26. I've been in constant danger, Paul says, on the move and danger from rivers and bandits and my own countrymen and the Gentiles and in, the, in the city and the country, dangers at sea and dangers from who? Who's coming after Paul, causing him trouble? Fake Christians. You think fake Christians ever give us a run? A ruckus? Think we've ever had to deal with that as a church? You don't believe that. We need to talk later. Happens every church I've ever pastored, folks. The church, I'm telling you, is flooded with fake people because nobody holds a standard, by and large. It's so lowered today. False leaders, not just fake, but fake leaders, right? Prophets and teachers. Matthew 7, Jesus said, watch out for what? False prophets, right? Like that guy who said, you need to get an abortion. Don't have kids. Have a vasectomy because you need to give me your money. 
That's what he was doing. He said he was a prophet. Are you kidding me? He says, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. And by what? Their fruit, you will recognize them. If you encourage people to kill children and all you want is their money, I have a problem with that. Well, you're just being intolerant. No, I'm not. Jesus said, by your fruit, you're going to recognize them. Now, I'm not saying I'm perfect because I'm not. But promoting the murder of children and, and ripping people off. Anyway, 2 Corinthians 11, for such men are, f- what? There it is again. It's pseudo fake. Fake, false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And Paul finishes it. And no wonder, because guess who also does that charade? Satan. He'll even masquerade as an angel of light. So it's not surprising that his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, including banding together with other religions and saying, we need to come here in a prayer circle and do this art dance and, and bless murdering children. Their end will be what their actions deserve. And Second Peter 2, he warned in the future, it's coming, folks, but there's also false prophets among the people, just as there will be in the future false teachers among who? You, what's the context? The church says they're coming in. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many, this is what's said, not a few. Oh, how could they fall for that? Many, and the context is the church, not the world. Many will follow their shameful ways and bring the way of truth into disrepute. Wow. Now you're thinking, well, maybe that's just those liberal churches. You know, that was, I mean, the fake Christianity stuff. No, even those who, again, who claim to be evangelicals, like you and I, they're going along with this. It's crazy. Let me share with you, and this is from George Barna. If you're not familiar, he does all kinds of statistical data. And he talks about Americans slash Christians are, quote, confused about abortion. Which I thought was interesting because what's so confusing about it? It's wrong. But listen to what he said. Quote, a majority of those who say they are pro-life also say that even though they would not have an abortion, they think that everyone should have the right to choose. Then you're not pro-life. One quarter of the self-proclaimed pro-lifers believe abortion should be allowed if the baby is less than one month old. Then you're not pro-life. Almost one in four pro-lifers, 23%, contend that abortion should be legal in all or most circumstances. Then you're not pro-life. And then, on top of that, one-fourth of the self-described pro-choice segment, 25%, admit that abortion is murder. But about the same amount said it should be legal in most circumstances. Crazy. Now, let me give you this. These are stat- These are people who, who noted on this survey that they're not just a Christian, they're a born-again Christian. Oh, they're not this atheist, godless church. Oh, they're not the liberal type. They're not the one that, you know, has female pastors and all that stuff. They're supposed to be born again. It's supposed to be the legit deal. Listen to these stats. Okay, f- oh, first of all, 43% consider themselves to be strong pro-life. These are people to be born again. Why isn't it 100%? You're not even at half. 43%. Again, I'm not talking liberal. I'm not talking atheist. I'm talking those who specifically say, no, 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 we are real, we're the real deal. We're born again. 43%. Now, listen to this. 
How many of those who claim to be born-again Christians say that abortion should be legal if the baby is less than one month old? 45% support that. You're supposed to be born again. Uh, 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 You can kill the child in its first trimester? 32% of those claiming to be born-again Christians said, no, that's okay. In the second trimester, 15%. Not liberal, not atheist. They say, I'm a born-again Christian. 15%. Oh, and by the way, how many of you, these are born, supposed to be born-again Christians, uh, agree with the stopping of the funding for Planned Parenthood? 30%. Can I flip that around for you? Do the math. That means those proclaiming to be born-again Christians, 70% have no problem with Planned Parenthood continuing to get funding. Do you see how deep this goes? Can I throw in one more stinger for you? Since I are a pastor, and we're talking about churches, and we're talking about this issue, and we're talking about people sliding on it, where's the rest of our congregation? This is our third week on this study, folks. Can I dish out a spanking? And you wonder why this is going on? And folks, we are a born-again, Bible-believing church. And if our attendance is this stinking low, we're in trouble. Who are these people coming in on Sundays? I get it. Things come up. But folks, this has been historically one of the lowest attended studies in our Wednesday nights. Tonight's not quite as bad, but we also have visitors. Why isn't this place full? Why aren't we as born-again, Bible-believing Christians here at Sunrise, why isn't this place packed? We've done plenty of announcements. What's going on? Or have we also act like this isn't going on? That ain't going to help. But I want to I make it easy for us, at least that are here tonight. Should we really support this? Should, is this, is this, you know, well, maybe, uh, is, is there room to waffle on it? Is, is, you, know, is, you know, I know God said to separate yourself from all that, you know, don't support this. And I mean, what can Christ have with Belial and darkness and light? But is it really that bad? Yes, it is. And you know what's ironic? The people in Congress who recently met on the Planned Parenthood issue is still ongoing about trying to get rid of the defunding, which I hope they do. Okay. And, uh, but at least the Congress people admit what is really going on when they do an abortion and they mass murder children? Watch this. We welcome our distinguished witnesses today. Do you and each of you swear that the testimony that you are about to give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And I'll now begin by introducing today's witnesses. The first witness is Dr. Anthony Levitino. Dr. Levitino is a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist Over the course of his career, Dr. Levitino has practiced obstetrics and gynecology in both private and university settings, including as an associate professor of OBGYN at the Albany Medical College. And Dr. Levitino, we'll begin with you. Welcome. Thank you, Chairman and members of the committee. Um, I only have five minutes, so I'm going to get right to it. Second trimester D&E abortions perform between roughly 14 and 24 weeks of gestation. Your patient today is 17 years old. She's 22 weeks pregnant. Her baby is the length of your hand plus a couple of inches. 
and she's been feeling her baby kick for the last several weeks. She's asleep on an operating room table. You walk into that operating room scrubbed and gowned, and after removing laminaria, you introduce a suction catheter into the uterus. This is a 14 French suction catheter. If she were 12 weeks pregnant or less, basically the width of your hand is smaller, you could basically do the entire procedure with this. But babies this big don't fit through catheters this size. After suctioning the amniotic fluid out from around the baby, you introduce an instrument called a sofa clamp. It's about 13 inches long. It's made of stainless steel. The business end of this clamp is about two and a half inches long and a half inch wide. There are rows of sharp teeth. This is a grasping instrument. When it gets a hold of something, it does not let go. A DNA procedure is a blind abortion, so picture yourself introducing this and grabbing anything you can blindly and pull, and I do mean hard, and out pops a leg about that big, which you put down on the table next to you. Reach in again, pull again, and pull out an arm about the same length, which you put down on the table next to you. And use this instrument again and again to tear out the spine, the intestines, the heart and lungs. Head in the baby that size is about the size of a large plum. Can't see it, but you pretty good idea you've got it if you've got your instrument around something and your fingers are spread about as far as they go. You know you did it right if you crush down on the instrument and white material runs out of the cervix. That was the baby's brains. Then you could pull out skull pieces. And you have a day like I had a lot of times, sometimes a little face comes back and stares back at you. Congratulations, you just successfully performed a second trimester Dini abortion. You just affirmed her right to choose. One more question, Dr. Levitino. Why did you end your practice of doing abortions? I did over 1,200 abortions over a four-year period in private practice, now counting the ones that I did during my training. Um, I met my wife at, um, during my first year of training at Albany Medical Center. We got married about a year later and found that we had an infertility problem. After years of failed infertility treatment and several years trying to adopt a child, we were blessed with a, adopting a, a little girl that we named Heather in August of 1978. Um, as sometimes happens in those situations, my wife got pregnant the very next month, and we had two children 10 months apart. Um, two months short of my daughter Heather's sixth birthday, she was killed in an auto accident and literally died in her arms in the back of an ambulance. Anyone who has children might think they have some idea of what that feels like, but unless you've been through it yourself, you have no idea whatsoever. Um, I know people find it hard to believe, but uh, what do you do after disaster? You bury your child and then you go back to your life. And I don't remember exactly how long it was after my daughter died that I showed up at Albany Medical Center OR number 9 to perform my first second trimester DNA abortion. I wasn't thinking of it as anything special. This was routine to me. Um, but I reached in, literally pulled out an arm or leg, and got sick. You know, earlier on, I described stacking up body parts on the side of the table. It's not to, you know, gross people out, to use a simple term. When you do an, an abortion, you need to keep inventory. You have to make sure you get two arms and two legs and all the pieces. If you don't, your patient's going to come back infected, bleeding, or dead. Um, so I soldiered on and finished that abortion. And I know it sounds, as I said, hard for people to believe, but I'm, I'm telling you straight up my experience. You know, after over 1,200 abortions, first and second trimester up to 24 weeks and all the rest of it, and being very dedicated to it, for the first time in my life, I really looked. I really looked at that pile of body parts on the side of the table. And I didn't see her wonderful right to choose, and I didn't see all the money I just made. All I could see was somebody's son or daughter. And 
I stopped doing late-term abortions after that, and several months later stopped doing all abortions. Thank you. everybody we should be shouting this from the rooftops oh and by the way you wonder why last week I called the Democrat party the death party did you catch that last part not a single person and if you vote for that But maybe that's just us as I close tonight. Maybe it's just our generation. Maybe the younger generation coming up of Christians. I mean, maybe they, I mean, they seem more active. They seem like they want to change the world. I mean, surely they're taking a stand on this, aren't they? Let me close with these stats again from George Barna. He talks about the millennial age on down, the generation coming up. He said, while there is ample evidence that millennials and baby boomers have radically different lifestyles and views of the world, that both generations have surprisingly similar views on abortion. Millennials are much more likely to approve of abortions regardless of the age of the baby. They view the decision of a woman's choice more important than the baby having any rights. The younger group is less likely to view the baby a human upon conception and they are much less prone to halting funding for Planned Parenthood and are less likely to describe themselves as pro-life. That's the generation coming up and getting ready to come into power. And then he explains the confusion. He says, here's why. And I'll just give you the verse. My interpretation. You reap what you sow. We've had 25 plus years of not preaching the word of God and this is what we're left with. George Bonner said he noted that there's been a broad and consistent decline in Christian commitment. And not just attending the church services, because yeah, take it or leave it. But not even reading the Bible. Or, and quote, accepting Jesus as their Savior. Don't need to do that either, apparently. And, and, and even possessing a biblical worldview. Who cares about what the Bible says? I will decide. He says this is why it's this way. He said also pointed out that in this generation there's a rise of narcissism. It's all about self. And postmodernism, which says that you get to decide what's right and wrong. Then he goes on, he says, well, how did we get into this place? Listen, he found that most, quote, conservative churches in the United States of America still refuse to teach people about how to think biblically, even deal with controversial issues, and pastors steadfastly refuse to teach or preach on these issues, religious persecution, homosexuality, Israel, you name it, they don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Why? Because the church growth movement has infected the church. And if it's all about numbers, you don't preach the truth because people will leave. When it's the truth is what keeps us strong, it's the truth what sets people free. But because you don't preach the truth, oh, you got your numbers all right. But are these people even saved? And they're on your staff, they're behind the pulpits, they're directing the church now, and the ones coming up, they're being catered to. 
the ones where it's all about self. Don't tell me what's right and wrong. I'll decide. And if you think that the pastors who now, quote, cater to the millennial generation are going to turn things around, Rob, give it up for Rob. Rob sent me this last week. This is Pastor Carl Lentz. He's the pastor of Hillsong, which is one of the biggest, quote-unquote, millennial churches out there. He had a chance on national TV to stand up for abortion. Watch how he did. Let's take a look. Um, Hillsong is seen as a, a, this hip, progressive church that's drawing huge millennial crowds. But it's still evangelical. So where do you stand on social issues that, that young people are particularly passionate about, like gay marriage, abortion? Like, how do you address those types of things? So it's not a sin in your church to have an abortion? Um, that's the kind of conversation we would have, finding out your story, where you're from, what Work you believe. Work through it. Like, talk yeah, about Yeah, I mean, God's the judge. People have to live to their own convictions. And I think if I have to tell you... Um, if I have to tell you, what in the world your uh, pastor supposed to do? I'll tell you right here from the Word of God. Uh, let me fill in. It's not that complicated, dude. Yes, it is a sin. Bang! Case closed. You would say nothing, and that's one of the big ones. Suppose the big guys out there in the millennial generation, folks, it ain't looking good. And again. I'm not here to be pessimistic, but we got to deal with this, right? And we're not responsible for other people's behavior, but we are responsible for our own. So let's just make sure that we do speak up in love and get the truth out. Because it's not just about standing for the truth, as important as that is. Hello, God's word is very clear. This is wrong. It's murder. But for every person that we have the privilege to lead to Christ and lead them away from this behavior... It's not just a world ideal that got changed. A life was saved. A baby was rescued. Let's do that with our time. Amen? Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death. In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, "...you shall not bear false witness." That's lying, okay? How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand, okay? Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, 
you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. If we're being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even His name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's His standard. Uh, Even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that's the same thing. Uh, It's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the Scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step. To admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against Him and disqualified us that disqualified us for heaven. right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, For instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, Uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know it's actually on historical record that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused to take it. And so, even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what he was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. 
But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave. And the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.